Who says the Bible has to be boring? On the contrary, the Bible is the most thrilling book in the world. It's the only book with an invitation to join the very narrative you are reading. My goal is to be like your time-traveling tour guide, taking you into an exploration of scripture in search of precious treasure, timeless, life-giving truths that inform us of who God is, who we are, and how the story of everything really is His story. I invite you to join me as we learn to read the story, trust the story, and live the story, because there's no greater adventure than knowing the God of the Bible. I'm Brayden Brookshire, and this is Adventures in Theology. Yes, and today we are finishing the Macrisms, also known as the Beatitudes. And if you do not know why I'm calling them the Macrisms, then you probably need to listen back to the past few episodes. We are in the Sermon on the Mount, and we're going to continue going through the Sermon on the Mount, but we have to finish the Macrisms today, and I promise we really will. Um, And so, no recap, we just want to get right into it and then have some concluding thoughts. I don't have too much to say about each particular one, and my, so no recap, I do want to give one disclaimer. For those of you who have hung around the past few episodes, it has been different because as I would describe it, my thoughts have not been as well articulated. Uh, it is a lot more free-flowing. It's a lot more uh, me asking questions and uh, not having all the best answers. And so, long story short, if you've liked the past few episodes, great. And if you're like, okay, can we get back to uh, more thoroughly grounded research and uh, more articulate explanations, then, well... Starting next episode, I think we'll be back at that. So a little bit different style the past few episodes as we went through the macrosms. And yeah, hopefully you benefited from it still. But we will be back more to the normal way of communicating and hopefully better, hopefully improving. Um, yeah, so I, I digress from my disclaimers. And uh, as we head into this, I think one of the most important things to remember, not to recap, but to remember that if we want to know the difference between worldviews, you know, the Christian worldview, a Buddhist worldview, an atheist worldview, whatever the worldview, we have to ask of it, what is happiness and what is the path to said happiness? And of course, uh, the macroisms are revealing that. They're revealing uh, the way in which happiness, what happiness kind of is, well, kind of answers that, and, but the way to happiness based on the posture of a heart. And it's paradoxical because it's the things that you would not think. We've been going through that. All right, so Matthew 5, 8, the last of the few macroisms. We're on the sixth macroism of eight. So only three. Let's do this. Um, and again, I really uh, debate between saying, uh, beginning the translations with either happy are or congratulations to. In this case, I'm going to go with the happy translation. Matthew 5, 8. Happy are the pure in heart because they will see God for themselves. <sighs> now, when you read that, I think uh, people have one of two reactions. They just love this passage. They think it's so great. It's, it's nothing but uplifting. And then there's certain people who read, wait a second, I want to see God, but I have to be pure in heart. I have to be, you know, when we think of purity, you know, th- things like, oh, pure water, if it has any pollution in it, oh my gosh, like that's terrible. That's, it's ruined. And, and, and it's just an interesting way of thinking about it here. So purity in heart here does, I think what Jesus is getting at, first of all, is not the kind of ritual purity in heart, 
ritual cleanliness and purity of heart that would have been exhibited by, you know, the Pharisees, for example, who did, were pure in terms of their ritual um, washings and so on. But their heart, on the other hand, as Jesus would criticize, I was like, man, like, you do all these external behaviors that promote uh, ancient ritualistic purity, but your heart does not come across that way. Your heart is not pure. The way you're dealing with people, it's not. It, it reflects that your heart is not pure. So purity of heart for Jesus in this case, when he says this, is more about this moral, internal uh, uprightness and purity of heart. And I think it's more along the lines of this single-minded devotion and that comes from an internal cleansing that by following Jesus. So, of course, biblically speaking, the, the heart is the innermost self. It's the true self. It's the self that is absolutely naked and exposed before God. You might have a good showmanship as far as what you do and the behaviors and the patterns of your life and so on and the habits, but man, when you are naked and exposed before God, what, what is the heart that he sees in that beyond the showmanship? That's, our, that's what Jesus is asking for. In some, in some ways, he's calling for something more intense than some of the religious leaders of that day, but it's, it's just this authenticity that he's asking for here. Now, it's simpler, of course, but it's, it's a lot more difficult because it's this authenticity of the inner person, the inner man. Now, the, uh, what, what we need to understand when we talk about purity of heart is that like notions of spiritual perfection are not expected. You know, let me say it this way. You can be classified as pure in heart without being perfect. And now, of course, one day, you know, those who trust Jesus, they will be pure in heart in the most real and raw sense. But now, I, I, whether you just want to say by God's grace or whatever, you can be pure in heart even when you're not perfect. And I think we can really have confidence in this because even King David could pray in Psalm 51.10, create in me a pure heart, God. And he prays that in Psalm 51.10 in the broader context of Psalm 51, which is David's prayer of repentance after, um, well, sleeping with Bathsheba, who was Uriah's wife, and then making sure that Uriah was uh, killed in war so that he can take Bathsheba as his uh, wife after knocking her up. Like this whole dramatic adulteress and then a setting up the murder of her husband situation. A, a terrible sin, no doubt. And yet, David prays for God to purify, give him a pure heart in that. Like, not that God justifies his behaviors, but that God justifies him, makes him right again, creates a steadfast spirit within him. And if you read Psalm 51 on your own, you'll know that David's not, David is not making excuses for his behavior. He's asking for God to almost like make him new in that sense, give him a pure heart. And so what I mean by that is it doesn't mean having a pure heart means that, it, it, it doesn't mean that we are making excuses for our behavioral patterns. But what it does mean is that God can continually renew the heart to be pure in heart for those who desire to have that pure in heart before God. And so it kind of the unspoken method, if you will, to a pure heart is a lifestyle and a rhythm of repentance in our lives. Repentance that 
that not only leads to joy, but leads to spiritual renewal, to a pure heart before him. And so Psalm 51 really is one of those ones that I would bookmark. And I return to often because it was in one of David's darkest moments, if not his worst sin. And yet later on in the Old Testament, or at some point in the Old Testament, I think it's in 2 Samuel. Don't quote me on that. But God, referring to David, says, ah, he was a man after my own heart. Wait a second, how can David be a man after God's own heart when uh, he did such a terrible thing? I mean, adultery and murder? Some of us will never do either of those in our lives. But this is not the comparison game. Sin is sin. And uh, although sins are not equal, sins equally separate people from God. <laughs> So, you know, I, I do think that Psalm 51 needs to be something we return to, that we need to have rhythms of repentance if we want to be a person of a pure heart. And that's why the great thing, you know, where this falls in line as the sixth macrism is really fitting because, um, you know, the, the only, only God, first of all, can purify the human heart. And that's why poverty of spirit, uh, being poor in spirit, as the first macrism says, acts as kind of like a prerequisite to being pure in heart. You can't be pure in heart unless you have a, uh, you are poor in spirit. Because <laughs> when you are poor in spirit, you will realize that you need God to be the source of your heart purity. In the consequential result of being pure in heart, as the text says, renders seeing the face of God. And seeing God's face is expressed in the liturgy of the Psalms as an intense desire of the righteous. In Psalm 11, 7, 17, 15, 24, 3 through 4, etc. And even Moses, Moses, the guy who uh, spoke to God face to face, never saw God's face. Now you're like, wait, doesn't that sound like a Bible contradiction? No, you can talk to someone face to face and not see their face. Guess what? Either your eyes are closed they're, or like they're wearing a mask and you're wearing a mask or something and it's completely dark and so you can't see, but you can be literally face-to-face -face someone without seeing their face. Not a contradiction. But point being, even Moses was not permitted to see God's face. And you can see Exodus chapter 33 for that. But the good news, the gospel, is that for the pure in heart, which again, best understood in light of passages like Psalm 51, the pure in heart get to see God's face which reminds us, or I guess pushes us forward to this vision in Revelation 22, verse 4, one of my favorite verses, which declares that they, the redeemed, that is, will see his face. And is thus the, the, a privilege reserved for the redeemed and only for them. As, you know, the Greek text of each of these macrosms makes it so clear by almost fronting the word they, and like they will see God for themselves. Like, and it, the way the word order in the Greek works basically is putting an emphasis that them and only them, or they and only they. And so in other words, the pure in heart and only they will be the ones who see God's face. So the pure in heart can, are congratulated because they will get to enjoy the intimacy of God's presence in a sense that is not possible here and now. Even us who are in relationship with God, we... You know, the, the veil has been torn in a sense, but uh, there's a greater reality where we get to experience his manifest present face to face that still awaits us. And that is really good news. Now, the seventh macrism, um, which is Matthew 5, 9, reads this. Happy are the peacemakers because they will be called sons and daughters of God. 
great verse. And the, 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 the word for peacemakers here, um, it's literally those who make peace. It's like one compound word. It's a really cool thing. But the idea is here is being a person who stands between two hostile parties and aids in the reconciliation process. You know, it's it's those who have experienced God's peace now being an agent of his peace in the world. And so to be kingdom builders, to be peace builders, it, it comes by like, you know, instead of taking delight in the drama and conflict between persons, watching and watching the division between them worsen, well, that's bad. No, it's not that. It's being a peace builder means how can I not enter this conflict for the sake of elevating or escalating the situation, but how can I come to help extinguish it? How can I be a person of peace here between these two people who are, if anything, becoming more divisive? Now, um, this macroism, I think, is, is calling us as followers of Jesus to bring peace to relational discord. And Jesus addresses that again in Matthew 18, especially verses 15 through 20. So check that out. Um, but it's, it's not just about inserting yourself into other people's situations. It's also being a peacemaker when you have conflict. And it, I think what's implied in being a peacemaker is that you are going to come across conflict, whether the conflict of others who you come to aid in the reconciliation process, or whether it's conflict that you walk into or sometimes instigate. But, you know, the, the point of this peacemaker thing is not praising those who cause conflict, uh, but praising those who are good at resolving conflict. <laughs> and so, you know, in Jesus's case, for example, it's not like this guy never had conflict. I mean, heck, even sometimes Jesus brought about peace through confrontation. Uh, he was not lax when it came to calling out the things that needed to be called out. And so sometimes he confronts the Pharisees and sometimes the Pharisees confront him and he doesn't just like become a doormat that they, all their accusations, he just are like, you know, unaddressed. He sometimes responds and uh, in that sense <laughs> escalates the conflict. But the point is that being a peacemaker is not like, I don't know, it's, it's, it's not like a synonym for, what's the word I'm looking for here? It's not, oh, synonym of appeasement. It's not meaning, okay, I'm just going to appease people, whatever they want. I'm going to just make sure that because I'm all about having peace and harmony. No, like being a peacemaker sometimes takes hard work. And sometimes it means walking through conflict, but walking through conflict with the very intention of resolving it, to be at peace again, to not remain hostile with another fellow human being. Now that's the hard work of this. And in, in that, we're called sons and daughters of God when we do that. I don't know about you, but the, the times that I've either been a part of someone else's peacemaking journey or made peace with someone, whether from honestly something I did wrong or something they did wrong to me, you really do feel like God's child in those moments. It's hard to articulate, but it's, it's almost like in those moments man, I'm really reflecting the Prince of Peace by being an agent of peace. And instead of living in dis discord and disharmony with other people, like that's a stressful feeling. I mean, some people are better at it than others, but like we should not be good at living with hostility with other people, especially people we know. Now, okay, now, I, and I, I think what one of the most practical pieces of advice I can give to, to you and to me, preaching to myself here, 
on the topic of being a peacemaker is this. To be a peacemaker means giving up the need to be right in order to be reconciled. If you hear nothing else from this episode today, get this again. Being a peacemaker means giving up the need to be right in order to be reconciled. See, the goal of reconciliation is more important than proving to the other person why you were right about the conflict or getting, you know, that's just, that's just irrelevant at times. Now, there are times that sin is involved in why there's discord, and yes, that needs to be addressed. Again, I would reference you to Matthew 18, 15 through 20. There are times when that kind of conflict is being talked about, but I think the, the, the broader sense here and maybe the more like, I don't know, less serious sense here is when like there is discord between people or discord that you have with someone and like you've both stated your position, you've both stated on why you feel like you're right or more offended than another person or more in the right (laughs) or whatever it is. But being a peacemaker means, you know what, like time out. Like I'm going to set aside the fact that I have to be right about this to pursue reconciliation in this relationship. That's being a peacemaker. And, you know, um, I, I think that this is one of the most difficult things to do. I don't know, actually, the more and more I think about the macrosms, I think this might be the most difficult one. I think it's the most difficult one because talk about a stab to our own pride. If you're like me, not only do I like being right, I like to be recognized as being right. I like when other people can admit and be like, oh, yeah, I, you were right, and now I apologize and, you know, like lay themselves at my feet and ask for my forgiveness. Like, isn't that great? But, you know, sometimes there are conflicts where maybe a sin or a serious sin was not involved. And it's not about one person being perfectly right. It is about maybe the fact that it was a mishap of communication. Maybe a time when you know, there's a justifiable case to where both people from their own perspective, not that there are two rights and there's no objective truth, but that like there's two perspectives that have some validity to them and we have to give up. We have to surrender the need to be right and to be recognized as being right in order to pursue reconciliation. Again, with such a broad statement, like the macroisms usually are, like and, you know, happy are the peacemakers. I, we can't pigeonhole it into one particular usage. Being a peacemaker, again, is about sometimes helping other people reconcile. It's sometimes about reconciling those that you have discord with. It, and overall, it's, it's more than an attitude. It really is a way of being, a way of living. So that's why it comes down to the condition of the heart, which I think all the macrosms do. It's not just behavioral patterns we put on or put off. It's, it's a way of being as a follower of Jesus. It's a posture of the heart or of the soul, of the spirit, whatever word you want to use there. It's that kind of description of our spiritual condition so that in every way that we behave, as long as we are congruent and consistent with who we are as followers of Christ, we are peacemakers, not peace breakers. <laughs> not uh, that we don't enjoy or uh, find our default in hostility with others, but we find a default in creating peace in the environments that we are in. Matthew 5.10. It's the last of the macrosms. Aren't you pumped about this? This has been quite the journey. <laughs> but it is good and hopefully been nourishing for you.
Matthew 5.10 reads, Happy are those who are persecuted for the sake of righteousness, because the kingdom of heaven belongs to them. Now, of course, we've noted this quite a few times. Might need to do a blog post about this, but the kingdom of heaven belongs to them. That phrase, you know, is an inclusio between the first and the last macroism, the first and the eighth one. And both is the consequential result of both those is that the kingdom of heaven belongs to them. So it kind of capstones these two to get the, the first and the last macroism together. So happy are those who are persecuted for sake of righteousness. Now, raise your hand if you want to be persecuted. Um said no one ever, right? Like, no one wants to be persecuted. And the, the most perplexing thing about this passage, at least, is that it's persecuted for the sake of righteousness. Now, that's odd, because, wait a second, like, you would think that the person who is righteous, the person who is doing right, would not be persecuted, but would be celebrated. And now Jesus is congratulating them for being righteous, but he's also congratulating the fact that they're able to some sort of way endure being persecuted because of their righteousness, like, that that seems odd, but we should actually not be surprised here because, heck, if Jesus, the very paragon and exemplar of righteousness, was persecuted to the point of the cross, how can his followers expect any other destiny? I mean, yeah, like, Christianity has come a long, long way in this world, but there are cyclical times and patterns that, you know, Christians are not... Um, enjoyed for their way of life, their ethics, their uh, view of the how the way the things should go, and ultimately the fact that Jesus is our king and our allegiance goes to no other other than him, and so certain things we will not bow down to or compromise on. That causes, ultimately, us to be a target at times. And so, so I mean, what I also like about this macroism is that it really implies that if a if a follower of Jesus is being persecuted for righteousness sake, clearly they're not being a hermit. Clearly they are engaged in um, society because otherwise you wouldn't be persecuted by society if you're not engaged in it. So the underlying assumption here is not only that someone is righteous, but it's not a private righteousness that hides in a cave and says, I am holy and I'm separating myself from the world uh, you know, all that, it's, no, it's, it's a righteousness that engages society with the very intention of transforming society in, at times, in accepting the fact that you may have to have the cost of being persecuted for the sake of engaging society. And so, no doubt, while I think that being a peacemaker is probably the hardest one to live out, this one's the hardest one to kind of just, like, swallow. Like, you know, we're, we're going to be persecuted, and sometimes that means physical violence, sometimes verbal abuse, or both, and that has different degrees and spectrums, and, you know, different parts of the world, it's more severe, but in every case, whatever the form of persecution, it's for sake of righteousness. And so, um, I, I think it's something that we should not be surprised by if that's something we come into or walk into to where, and even the little things like we, which I don't know if I want to call it little, but like we are degraded in our humanity because of the sake of following Jesus. We shouldn't be surprised by it. And in some ways we should like remember that Jesus congratulates us and says that, oh my gosh, these are, these are people that haven't figured out because not only are they righteous, but they're being persecuted for it. Hey, like Jesus know what that, knows what that's like. He was persecuted for righteousness sake. And of course the result 
of being righteous and engaging society and sometimes being persecuted for righteousness is the result of receiving, receiving the kingdom of heaven. The, it, oh, that, that belongs to us, that that's our possession, both present and in the future, because we are ultimately his follower and willing to go to such lengths of being persecuted without compromising the way of Jesus. And so now as we, as we really close out today, I want to walk through all of them <laughs> with a quick explanation of each of them. Because um, ultimately all the macrisms will come together to explain the kind of person that Jesus congratulates as being positioned to be in favor with God because of the like condition of their inner self, of their soul. So as a fitting conclusion, let's walk through all of them in a really cool paraphrase that shows their connection. Then we'll be done for today. Then we'll move beyond the macrisms, all right? So macrism number one, a true disciple um, are the ones who have experienced their poverty of spirit and are congratulating as being recipients of the kingdom, inaugurated now and coming into the fruition, full fruition soon in the future. The spiritually poor, as they are, know that they are empty and hollow without the Spirit of God. Their reliance and absolute dependence are their providential condition. And as God can begin to do wondrously infinite things through those who come to be and recognize that they are spiritual beggars. Macrism 2. Having realized our spiritually dependent condition, we, we grieve the brokenness of the inner and outer world from the ramifications of personal to corporate sin we lament the state of existence of the world recognizing that everything is not as it should be and then macrism number three due to the authenticity of our poverty of spirit and grieving the state of the world of because of sin uh, we end up breaking the cycle of violence and aggression by resolving to be gentle in spirit thus beginning to repair the world instead of inflict further damage to it. The world doesn't need more aggressive, oppressive people. It needs more gentle people. And these kind of people, if we are them, can be entrusted with the earth as our inheritance since oppressive and destructive ways of life are renounced by us. As disciples of Christ, oppressive and destructive ways are renounced and the earth will be in good hands as we humbly submit to the rightful king and his gentle, meek, way as his followers. Macrism number four, because we've experienced poverty of spirit, grieving over sin, and have resolved to be gentle spirited, we hunger and thirst for righteousness. We're famished for God's justice to reign in our hearts and in our world, and we desperately desire to feast on the goodness that makes the soul upright in what it does and helping reverse the injustices of the world. Macrism number five, the reality of our own need and hunger for righteousness <clears throat> has made us merciful to others. We have tasted the mercy of God and cannot help but deal it out as generously as can be. Knowing that there's no record of wrongs counted against us, we cancel any certificate of indebtedness one owes to us. Macrism number six, experiencing the mercy of God and becoming merciful in response. We walk in a state of purity of heart before God, having a rhythmic pattern of repentance in our life as modeled by David in Psalm 51. Longing to see God face to face, we strive for purity, the kind of purity of heart that only God can sustain and renew through a relationship and repentance. Macrism number seven, at peace with God, because of a pure heart, we resolve to live at peace and be agents of peace, among all 
whom we live with and among. And then macrism number eight, being like our Messiah, a true disciple will be persecuted for embodying the kind of righteousness that led to Jesus's death on the cross. So the disciple's character, being his disciple, and the character of righteousness, though the only way to heal the world will not be without hostile opposition. And so we should not be surprised when we are opposed for subscribing to and living out the way of Jesus and the world. And so now we close, and with the macrisms, we have come to understand more, not exhaustively, but at least a little bit more and more in depth, of at least this passage's description of what the the disciple's character is like, what the character and inner condition of a disciple is really like. Now, I hope this has been helpful to you. I would love if you sent me a message and let me know which of the macrisms was most impactful, maybe the one you learned the most about and the one that's resonated most deeply with you. Thanks for tuning in, and we will continue on the Sermon on the Mount next week as we look at what it means to be salt and light and how these metaphors actually make really great sense of the Christian's uh, influence in the world. And so until then, we'll see you next time on Adventures in Theology.